Hello, this is Ian Wolf, producer of Diffusion Science Radio. You can now support Diffusion through the Patreon support page at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Send me a message about the supporter rewards you'd like to receive. Or make a donation directly with the PayPal button or click on an Amazon affiliate link at www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, how to slow aging in women with Dr. Judy Ford. But first up, here's the news. Giant black holes poke fun in Parliament. Three colliding spiral galaxies 1.8 billion light-years from Earth have produced a giant black hole weighing 3 billion times the mass of the Sun. The discovery was made on a routine test of the new Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder Telescope operated by CSIRO. The black hole at the centre of our galaxy is only 4 million solar masses, so this one is a monster in comparison, said lead author Dr Lisa Harvey-Smith, from CSIRO Astronomy and Space Science. What had been labelled from previous observations in 1989 as a blob of gas acting as a natural microwave laser, a maser, in the galaxy IRAS 201000-4156, where IRAS is short for Infrared Astronomical Satellite, turned out to be three galaxies colliding with the black holes at their centres merging to form a giant black hole around a thousand times more massive than the one at the centre of our own Milky Way galaxy. Dr Harvey Smith decided to make a routine observation of the microwave laser gas blob in galaxy IRAS 201000-4156 to test out the Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder Telescope at Murchison in Western Australia. The results were anything but routine, so she had to cross-check with the Australia Telescope Compact Array at Narrabri in New South Wales. They found that the maser was moving twice as fast as previously thought, no less than 600 kilometres a second around the centre of that galaxy. The speed of its orbit tells you the mass of the black hole. The formation of supermassive black holes through the merging of galaxies creates a starburst, in which stars start forming hundreds of times more quickly than they did before. This enables astronomers to see the galaxy despite it being nearly 2 billion light-years away. Measuring the mass of many supermassive black holes in galaxies of different ages could give insights to how galaxies have evolved over the history of the universe. The Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder Telescope currently has nine antennas commissioning and testing, and the early science program will begin when they have 12 antennas ready. When finished in 2018, the telescope will have 36 identical antennas, each 12 metres in diameter, that will work together as a single instrument. 
The news of this amazing discovery and demonstration of the power of an instrument that isn't even finished yet was announced in Parliament by the Science Minister, Christopher Pine. The Minister for Industry, Innovation and Science. Well, thank you, Mr Speaker. I thank the member for Braddon for his interest in astronomy, uh, which I also share as the Minister for Science, and I'm sure that all members on this side of the House uh, focus very keenly on astronomy, which Australia is very good at as a world leader in astronomy. And I can advise the House of a recent and significant discovery by astronomers at the CSIRO using the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder Radio Telescope in the member for Durax Electorate and the Australian Telescope Compact Array in the member for Parks as Electorate. Dr Lisa Harvey-Smith, an astronomer at the CSIRO, discovered a supermassive black hole in a galaxy 1.7 billion light-years away. A galaxy far, far away, Mr Speaker, weighing in at 3.8 billion solar masses. As Dr Harvey-Smith observed, and I quote, the black hole at the centre of our galaxy is only four million solar masses, so this one is a monster in comparison. Well, well, I've got news for Dr Harvey Smith. I've got news for Dr Harvey Smith, Mr Speaker. If she thinks that's a monster, she should take a look at Labor's black hole, Mr Speaker. Labor's 19.53 billion dollar tobacco tax black hole. Dwarfs that supermassive black hole by comparison, Mr. Speaker. You can imagine how the next few minutes went. It's an election year in Australia, and the coalition government has decided that science is a joke, fit only to use to insult the opposition in Parliament. As you heard last week when the Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce announced a CSRO program to control invasive species of carp in Australian rivers. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Dr Judy Ford is a geneticist at the University of South Australia. She spends most of her time training PhD students. She also spends time in thinking research. She gave a talk at the Australian Biological Aging Conference titled Female Reproduction, Insights into Fatty Acid Metabolism and Whole Body Aging. I phoned her and began by asking her, what is this sudden change that hits women at age 37? My story is that I became interested in this whole problem when I was very, very young, when I first met a little boy with Down syndrome when I was about seven years old. And I asked my mother what was wrong with this little boy and she said that he had a condition called mongolism and that it often happened to the children of older mothers. So they had observed this a very, very long time ago and I guess, you know, I put that at the back of my mind and later on when I worked in human genetics that was the first thing I actually ever did. So my first job, which was at the Children's Medical Research Foundation in Sydney, was to develop 
prenatal diagnosis. So this is a very long time ago and we were you know looking at the cells from amniotic fluid to see whether a mother was carrying a baby with Down syndrome. So that was a long time ago but I was always very interested in the whole problem and the mechanism and so people have for years and years and years and years been trying to study why this happened. It was well established from a very long time ago from studies all over the world that this happened in women of every culture that around about age 37 there was this exponential increase in the risk of having a child with Down syndrome. So nobody seemed to be able to really work out the mechanism. We could observe what went wrong, that the chromosomes weren't dividing properly and that at the end of division a lot of the maternal eggs would be carrying an extra chromosome so that when they fertilized the baby ended up with one extra chromosome. But nobody really had provided a satisfactory solution. So a long time ago when I was running a lab here in Adelaide we did a study to see whether there was any evidence that other cells in the body were similarly undergoing a problem. So we grew blood cells and we looked at those from women of different ages, younger women and older women and we discovered that yes, although all cells made a mistake the cells in which there ended up being an extra chromosome, this change to this type of mechanism also occurred at around about age 37 and it's quite dramatic and the difference in the behavior of the cells is huge. So why? And so this then became, I knew at this stage that this was a whole body problem, it wasn't just something confined to the reproductive system. And almost everybody else who's studied this phenomenon has looked at it as just part of the reproductive system and that's where my work has been a little bit different. So following these studies that I did with a colleague a long time ago, I followed up with, with some different sorts of studies on lymphocytes which we call the cell cycle test and in the cell cycle test we develop a special technique that I don't think anybody else has ever used and in this we just grew lymphocytes again, there's the white blood cells but instead of preparing them in the usual way we just treated them with ice very quickly so that they were captured in whatever phase of division they were in and we, we looked at them. Now here this was a sort of bit more of a complex analysis and looked at the specific stages of cell division to see where the mistake was occurring. So <laughs> we have to go back a little bit now and look at the stages of cell division. So the stages of cell division are called prophase, metaphase, anaphase and telophase. But a lot of people, even if they've studied quite a bit of biology, may not know that anaphase has two phases. Anaphase is where the two chromosome sets get pulled apart but there's an anaphase A in which the chromosomes just separate from one another and there's an anaphase B in which the spindle elongates and the two chromosome sets are pushed 
quite a long way from one another. And this phase of division is very energy dependent and is very dependent on mitochondrial function. And so in these observations of the cell cycle, I discovered that it was this phase of spindle elongation that was compromised in women as they got older. I'm not suggesting here that this doesn't happen in men too, but we have, we have confined our studies to women. And so this dysfunction of the energy system of the cell was, as you might guess, happening at about age 37. So this matches now what has been found by other people in the reproductive system. They are finding that the mitochondria in the eggs of older women are seriously compromised. And one of the other speakers at the conference showed some beautiful work in which they'd actually transplanted mitochondria into old eggs and by doing this they were able to recover normal spindle function in those eggs and end up with normal babies. Okay, well that's terrific, but if you're going to have to go around collecting mitochondria and putting them in eggs, that's a very expensive way of, of going about life. So although I find that extremely interesting, I'm much more interested in working out why the mitochondria are suddenly having problems. And knowing that this is a whole body problem, I went further and so by this stage I've started to work in the university as a sort of a, what I'm calling a desktop scientist. I don't have a laboratory anymore, I've only got a computer and my head to work with. So I looked through the literature to find whether there was any evidence in anyone's papers of another major change occurring in a, a bodily system at about this sort of age group that might give insight to this whole issue of cell division and cellular dysfunction. And I found some data from Scotland, from Dundee, uh, where they had worked with a huge project called the Scottish Heart Study. And I contacted the person in the lab about this, and he, and his name is Roger Tavendale, he was kind enough to send me the data, the raw data that he had collected and he had data on some younger women that he hadn't published so I've got a data set that actually hadn't been published by them. Anyhow, this is fatty acid metabolism and I knew nothing about fatty acid metabolism but anyhow when we analysed this, and I got some very good statisticians involved in this because I realised it was so important, we found that there was a cutoff, a change that is, a major change in fatty acid metabolism that occurred, and this is, these are studies from adipose tissue, that occurred again at this same age of 36-37 is the sort of transition. And I thought this was incredibly exciting and didn't know what it meant, but was able to demonstrate 
that the changes occurred in the three omega pathways. So you've, everyone's heard of omega-3. We hear of omega-3 all the time. We're given the impression that omega-6 is a bad guy. But we don't hear much about omega-9, which happens to be the most important pathway. And the key player in this, from I guess, that we know about is something called oleic acid, which is very much present in olive oil. And the really bad guys in the omega-9 pathway are stearic acid, which is found in fat, and palmitic acid, which is derived from palm oil. And we've got to start worrying about this because of all those palm trees that are being cut down everywhere. And so we've got to wonder about how much palm oil we might be actually getting into our systems. However, I digressed. (laughs) (laughs) Once I started with this, I started sort of following my nose, I discovered that fatty acids play enormous roles. I mean, I knew that there were fatty acids in, in cellular membranes, but of course if you change the fatty acids in a membrane, you change its function. And so cells are, have got huge numbers of membranes. We've got the plasma membrane, we've got the endoplasmic reticulum, we've got the Golgi apparatus, and we've got liposomes and all these other little organelles. But the most important organelle, and the one that is absolutely packed and packed and packed with membranes, is, is the mitochondria. And so the mitochondrion, or the mitochondria, plural, are going to be incredibly sensitive to changes in the composition of fatty acids. And so I then realized that this is the key to the problem. So my latest work has been trying to sort of figure out what actually happens, what is driving these changes in fatty acids and ending up with this this problem area. So it gets a bit more complex from there. (laughs) I've worked out two different sorts of mechanisms. One which obviously is going on in all cells of the body and that is that when cells reach their telomere limits and telomeres are the bits at the end of the chromosomes and little bits get cut off each time cells divide, that if we see that cells are getting older and they're reaching their telomere limits, the moment they reach their telomere limits a gene called the p53 gene is switched on and this then switches off fatty acid metabolism so it switches off a key gene called fatty acid synthase and once once that is switched off then all these other different genes that are involved in the conversion of short chain fatty acids to longer chain fatty acids are switched off. So that is what is changing the function of the membranes in most of our cells. Now in the reproductive system it may be partly driven by that but it might also be driven by another mechanism which makes the whole thing a little bit more complicated and involves something which you may have heard of called DHEA. 
And DHEA is something that for a long time has been thought to have maybe something to do with ageing and that maybe taking or putting DHEA on as a cream might be the elixir of life. Right? So, so there's been a lot of this sort of stuff, but DHEA levels are very variable. They are known to decrease markedly with age. And I think, you know, the, the jury is still out a little bit on how it all works. But certainly within the ovary, DHEA has a major role. And due to feedback mechanisms, as the number of eggs in a female's reproductive system are getting lower, there is a feedback system involving the brain that leads to lower levels of something called inhibin. And when that is lower, the production of DHEA from cells called the theca cells, which are a sort of interstitial sort of stromal they're the sort of cells in between the in between the eggs that sort of look after the eggs and form the structure from which the eggs sort of are, are growing up. And those cells, under the action of inhibin, produce uh, well. If inhibin isn't too high, I think it is. They they produce DHEA, and DHEA has has two roles. One role is to be the precursor of all the androgens and sort of so many of the important hormones within the reproductive system, but it also stimulates fat metabolism through a mechanism involving something called P-para-alpha. So it's, it's complex, but it can be explained, but no one has gone in and really looked at, at the lipids within the reproductive system itself. And I think there's, you know, for some really probably technically difficult but some exciting work that, that could be undertaken by the IVF labs, you know, who have an enormous amount of material really to work on and do some of these investigations. Mm. So if low DHEA is one of the results that causes some of the issues. Would DHEA as a therapy help? Yes, yes it does. And, and this is one of the things that's quite interesting because in most countries of the world, certainly the United States and many countries in Europe, they are giving DHEA to women and I feel that some of them aren't giving it early enough, so I've suggested in my papers that they need to give it three months before the cycle in which the women attempts to get pregnant. And because they're not giving it early enough, they're getting sort of a little bit of unreliable results. They are also tending to give it to all women with problems rather than just do a study on women who are otherwise normal but just have an age-related problem. But nevertheless, and despite that sort of lack of real focus on, on how and the dosage, they're getting remarkable results. So a lot of women are overcoming their um, fertility problems and their 
risk of miscarriage and having a child with a, a problem just by taking DHEA. And you also mentioned that the drug metformin can help. I'm not sure about in reproduction. It certainly has been used in, in some conditions in reproduction, but it, it I think, I was sort of just doing some, I'm not really an expert in that, but um, I think it also reverses uh, this, this fatty acid change. So again, it might not work in everybody, but, but it's certainly working on that same pathway. So it's sort of, what's so interesting is that it basically all comes back to the fats as being the major controllers of the cellular membranes and it's those alterations in the fatty acids in the membranes that is the cause of the problems rather than sort of complicated things that have been suggested by other people. But it's certainly strongly influenced by levels of DHEA but you don't want too much because women who have very high levels of androgens have something called polycystic ovarian syndrome so if you overdo the androgens <laughs> you, you, you overstimulate and you get masses of tiny follicles rather than the right ones so so this is sort of an area that needs needs a lot more work I think that was part one of Dr Judy Ford from the University of South Australia talking about how to slow ageing in women. You can hear the rest of the interview in next week's show. And a big thank you to Andrew from Melbourne for his monthly donation. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Check out the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Check out the Patreon page at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucco Valley, and 3MBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then explore more than 700 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the slightly delayed episodes on the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. 
You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.